I'm Bill Castle, and this is Free Expression. This program is all about conveying the Christian message from a Catholic point of view and defending the liberty which makes it possible to do that. We talk with creative, interesting people about teaching the theology of the body, some delightful new kids' books, and combating evil with a familiar prayer. Join us. Sit back and enjoy some free expression. There was a time when I, like many folks, I guess, would have dismissed the terrible things people do merely as symptoms of mental illness or the results of poor upbringing or painful experiences or maybe just man's propensity to be rotten. Well, yeah, those things can account for much bad behavior, but some things are so evil they seem to transcend ordinary influences or tendencies. In fact, they can seem beyond any rational explanation. Evil is real. It's a tangible force. Some call it a spiritual war, a war Christians need to prepare themselves to fight. Father Ken Geraci insists that we have weapons available to us to defend ourselves against the forces of evil. One of the most potent, he says, is the divine mercy devotion. He writes about that in his new book, Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, The Weapon for Our Times, from Tan Books. Father Ken is my guest. Father, thanks for being with us. Bill, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's delve into the reality of evil and how this unique devotion can help us. We'll start with the basics. What's behind the really horrible, inexplicable incidents that are unfortunately all too frequent? Well, I, I think sin. At the end of the day, if you want to give it one single blanket explanation, it's the fall of Adam that has invited sin and death into the world, and uh, that we live in a world that the prince of this world is, in fact, Satan himself. Spiritual warfare is a concept that's kind of hard to get your head around. One imagines unseen forces or evil beings whispering terrible things into the ears of vulnerable human beings. How does it work, actually? variety of different effects. St. Augustine talks about the different levels of diabolic activity, from things such as basic temptation to oppression to obsession, all the way up to possession. Uh, There's also a level of infestation that kind of fits in there. And so we all undergo different attacks of the devil, but most of those reside right at that level of temptation that we struggle against that for those of us who are staying in the state of grace. What we do know from the Church Fathers is that all it takes to be an agent of the devil is not to be in the state of grace. It doesn't mean that you become possessed, but it it means that you are more easily influenced for evil rather than good. I guess we all come face to face with this from time to time when we're trying to exercise choice over a decision that might have to be made or a reaction to something that's happened or something that someone has said to us. How do we discern that there's some kind of evil influence afoot? Well, I think if we go back to confirmation, where we were forced to memorize the the fruits of the Spirit, it would do us wise also to go through the Scriptures and look at what the work of the diabolic is, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the world, the discord, fighting. The voice of Satan is one of an accuser. So if you ever hear that little voice in the back of your head saying, I'm so dumb, I'm so stupid— 
you can credit that. It might be coming from yourself, but that conditioning or that patterning came from the voice of the devil. Our Lord does not accuse. Our Lord invites. He convicts. He will discipline. But he never says, you're no good, because he, in fact, made you good. And so if we want to try to understand the movement of the Spirit, we need to understand the fruits of the Holy Spirit that brings peace, love, joy, unity, right, versus the works of the diabolic. How does the Divine Mercy devotion factor into this? The Divine Mercy devotion, from a spiritual warfare perspective, and I'm I'm kind of extracting this from the message, our Lord told St. Faustina that she would be the secretary to prepare the world for his second coming. And so Faustina had a prophetic mission, and these are the words of St. John Paul the Great, not mine, that she was given this prophetic mission, that of a prophetess, to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that could happen this afternoon, it could happen in 50 years, or it could happen in 200 years. You know, that's on God's time. But the reality is, is that we know towards the end of time, this cosmic upheaval will take place, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that there would be an unleashing of the diabolic in in a more fervent way than ever before. And so I think if you have the eyes to see and ears to hear, all you have to do is look at our culture today and see the, the... spewing of the diabolic, the spewing of of people can't even recognize basic reason anymore. I mean, the fact that we have to dialogue about what a woman is in our culture, um, (laughs) we're we're in crazy land. But we're under such an assault all the time. I mean, even if we turn on TV and expect to watch a program that's morally inoffensive, there usually turns out to be something in it that is uh, quite <laughs> quite challenging more from a moral point of view. 100%. And this is actually a tactic, a, a part of the Hollywood's role to desensitize America. 50 years ago, they said, we're not going to start just plugging out all sorts of offensive stuff in every single show. We're going to put one scene in every show that breaks down morals, that breaks down values. And one scene turned into five or ten scenes, but it's not overly saturated, but it's enough to start breaking down things to the point now where, you know, a lot of our grandfathers, if he was alive today and saw the TV shows that came on through the television, that TV would be out in the middle of the street. (laughs) Why do you think the purveyors of popular culture have gone this route? They seem to have made themselves agents of, of the devil. I think that's it. I I mean, at the end of the day, that would be my response, is that they have been influenced and they have rejected the divine revelation of the dignity of the human person and embrace relativism and embrace whatever ism it is that's out there that allows them to basically assault natural reason and the natural law. From a practical perspective, getting back to the Divine Mercy, how can you apply this chaplet? How can you incorporate it into your prayer life? How can you use it specifically to fend off the influence of evil? The chaplet of Divine Mercy, and and I'm glad you asked that question, Bill, because this is the reason I wrote this book. The whole book is built upon this, this section on the chaplet of Divine Mercy. One of the things that I talk about that most people don't realize is that the Chaplet of Divine Mercy is an extension of the Liturgy of the Eucharist. When we pray the Chaplet, we pray, Eternal Father, I offer. Eternal Father, I offer you what? 
the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Hmm. For what reason? The atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. And so where do we find the body, blood, soul, and divinity? That's the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist is of the Mass. The Mass is the representation of Calvary. And so when we pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, we are entering mystically into Calvary, into Christ's victory over sin and death. But not only his victory over sin and death, where Satan and his evil spirits are defeated, but also our redemption and divine adoption. So when we want to engage in any kind of combat or war, you want to go to the most powerful weapons that are available. And there is nothing more powerful in the entire arsenal of the Church than Calvary itself. As many times as I've heard those words and said them myself, I guess I never really made that connection to the Eucharist. That's very insightful. This is, again, this is why I wrote it. And this is, if even people, even if you don't get this, get the book, please share this segment of this podcast. I am so concerned about this message getting out there because there are so many people who say the words, but they're not thinking about what they're saying. And again, they're powerful in themselves. Hmm. But every time there was a healing, every time there was a miracle, our Lord said, your faith has made you well. And so if we can pray the Chaplet of Mercy with greater faith, greater intentionality, greater awareness of what we're saying and what we're doing, how much more powerful are we going to be as warriors for Jesus Christ? Now, there are people who criticize and, and even reject the Divine Mercy devotion. I've read a lot of pretty pointed commentary. Some people maintain that it's not a legitimate spiritual exercise. It's something Catholics shouldn't do. How do you respond to all of that? It's very confusing when people say that, because the first question, if someone were to say that to me, I would ask, do you see St. John Paul as a valid successor to St. Peter? Because the Pope has spoken, the chair of Peter has spoken on this. And if they reject Peter, then we're dealing with a bigger issue than the but right? There, there's a bigger thing at play here. The, the second one would be, is that what part of Calvary do you not like? What part of standing there being washed in the blood of a lamb is offensive to you? Because when you pray the Chapel of Divine Mercy, I mean, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church, this, this Protestant megachurch pastor, he and his wife prayed the Divine Mercy Chapel regularly. Hmm. He talked about there was a period of time he, would, he, he recorded it off of EWTN, and he would come home after a long day, and he would sit there and pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So if our Protestant brethren recognize the value of Christ's one perfect offering, and for us to unite ourselves in that offering to the Father, I'm confused that other people would have problems with it. Now, you bring a certain worldly perspective to this from your own personal experience. You've got a kind of an interesting personal story. Give us a little background on yourself. Well, I was agnostic the vast majority of my life. I grew up in a Catholic family where we went to church every Sunday, but we never prayed together. We never read the scriptures or went to confession, to daily mass. We were just a typical 1980s, 1990s Catholic family where we were just going to church every Sunday. As a result, I never learned or knew anything about our faith, never had a relationship with Christ, never knew anything for myself. And so as a result, in high school, I fell away. Uh, went off to college to get a business degree and was ultimately recruited out of school. And I went to work for a technology company in their advanced R&D group. Went on to co-found with uh, my some people there at work. Uh, I was invited to join these 
group of people to co-found a $4.5 million software company. And it was my business partners that began to challenge me on my agnostic worldview, hmm. on God's existence, and then ultimately religion. And God flooded my life. And so when I talk about my conversion, it's very dynamic. It's really unbelievable. It's my Magnificat. But when I talk about this, I make sure to thank the people who are listening. Because every time that you have prayed for a sinner, every time you prayed for a conversion, every time you prayed for a man to open his heart to consider the priesthood, my vocation, my conversion and vocation are direct responses to people who prayed, fasted, and begged God for conversions and priests. I never wanted to be Catholic, and I never wanted to be a priest. But <laughs> I wouldn't want anything else in my life now. Well, where can people find out about the book? How can it be ordered? Can Books it has uh, posted this not only on their website, but you can also find Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy on Amazon.com. Search that title or search uh, Father Ken Geraci. I have two books. My first book is Why Be Catholic, and my second one is Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy. Spiritual Warfare and Divine Mercy, The Weapon for Our Times by Father Ken Geraci. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, you've brought a, a new perspective to this prayer that so many people use and may not even think deeply about. I'm, I'm very grateful for the insights. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great opportunity to share the faith and grow together. There's widespread disillusionment with education today. Years of failure have undermined confidence in public school teaching. And with more and more parochial schools closing each year, Catholic families find it increasingly difficult to choose that traditional option. In the last few years, the situation has become actually threatening as many public districts have embraced gender ideology. Parents all over the country are looking seriously at homeschooling. But taking your child's education into your own hands can be scary, especially in this time when kids are feeling so much pressure over questions of sex and gender. How do you approach these delicate issues? Well, there are organizations, particularly Catholic organizations, that provide homeschool materials that are educationally sound and in line with church teaching. One of them is TOB Parent School, and a driving spirit behind that group is Lindsay Karen. Lindsay, thanks for being with us. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Tell us about the TOB Parent School and especially what the TOB stands for. Sure. So TOB is Theology of the Body, and that is John Paul II's body of work that he delivered through Wednesday audiences in the Vatican for five years in the late 70s and early 80s. And so then it was later consolidated into book format, and in the 90s to 2000s, people started to really break it down and turn it into mission talks and school curriculum and such to make it more accessible to the masses. So we formed the TOB Parent School in 2000, because we found that all of those wonderful resources, such as Christopher West, Theology of the Body Institute, Real Woods Curriculum, those kind of things were beautiful, wonderful, but really hard to get into the modern Catholic parent's home, which would be, you know, that parent that maybe wants to do best by their child, but isn't quite sure how. 
And then our other audience that loves what we do is obviously the homeschool parent who is actively seeking out this kind of information. Yeah, you provide a variety of materials. What grade levels are we talking about serving here? We have five age groups, and it spans from age 2 to 22. So if you still have a child in college, you can you know gather them around if they haven't heard this and talk to them about it in an age-appropriate way. That's not dumbed down. It's college level. And likewise, if you have a two-year-old and even the babies you know, younger than two who are listening in. It's not too early. You need to start talking about these things at birth, really. And so the materials for the two- to five-year-olds, they're really very age-appropriate. You know, we never say the, the big buzzwords of the culture. That's left up to the parent, as we believe. The parent is the primary educator. But we just present the truth and the beauty. So these five age groups are littles, kids, middles, teens, and campus. Theology of the body is a lovely concept, but I, but it's a little intimidating. It might sound a little scholarly, a little highfalutin to the average parent. How do you get these concepts across in a way that the parents can grasp and then transmit that to their children? The material is it's for the parent to do with their child or, you know, at the older years, teen and college, to facilitate their child doing it. They may not do it, you know, side by side the whole time. But it is also, the theology is so, oh gosh, it's just wonderful. And it can be presented in such a way that it's presented for little kids who are five, but yet the parent is learning something new and able to access it. And it's still as profound as it was when John Paul delivered it. So it's really powerful. And in that sense, it is so easy for parents to learn alongside their kids in the way that we we present it with a lot of images and pictures and little theology sound bites instead of big, dense pages of it, comics and memes and, and fun things that kids are drawn to at their particular age groups and parents learn right alongside them. Well, you're certainly onto something that's extremely timely with all of the nonsense being propagated in schools about gender and sexuality and all the rest, uh, I imagine that the parents that subscribe to these materials find them extremely useful. Absolutely. We are hearing incredible feedback. I think our only challenge is just that we're still becoming known because I think that the people who have found us and know us are so grateful to have had the materials. And all those people out there who don't know about us yet are looking and they're frantic. And so I that is my biggest prayer right now, is just let this be known to all parents, because I, I believe that they all need it, love it, appreciate it. Do you get a fair amount of feedback from parents, uh, perhaps confronting issues in their local districts and problems in their local elementary school? I don't speak that out, and I don't hear a ton of things, and I think that that's because we are so deep into that problem that parents are beyond reporting that and talking about it and saying, oh, this is going on. It's awful. They are, we're past that. It's so bad. It's so deep. It's so comprehensive, this um, national sex ed standards that have now been uh, officially adopted from K to 12 in all subjects. And so parents have had a few years of being aghast at what they are having to deal with, and I think that they're done. They know that they don't have time to complain anymore. They just need to get on to the solution. Huh. What's your take on why the schools have become so caught up in gender? I mean, the approach that many educators have taken seems so extreme. <laughs> That's the big question um, of the whole woke ideology 
I think that what we see on that side of things politically is that people are drawn together in chaos somehow. There isn't any one unifying thing that draws everybody together, but the disunity seems to be what they are unified in, and it's very confusing. And the devil sows confusion so that he can seep in through that, and I think that that's the answer. We're we're just dealing with evil and how it is being exacerbated and, and played out in society is just the details. Well, how can people find out about this work? Can they obtain the materials? How can they follow your work? Absolutely. So they can go to our website, which is tobparentschool.org, and they can order magazines um, for ages 2 to 22 in English on there, and then the Spanish will be coming very, very soon. They can contact us if they're in any kind of leadership at a, a church or school to inquire about bulk pricing. And they can also contact us if they want to set up a local community of like-minded parents who um, also want to be teaching these truths to their children. Lindsay Karen, T.O.B. Parent School, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, this, is, this is stuff that's needed, certainly. It's timely. It's right on target, addressing one of the huge, huge social problems we're facing today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. An altar server has long been a rite of passage for Catholic boys and in recent times at some parishes for Catholic girls as well. It's an honor to assist Father at Mass and a considerable responsibility. But sad to say, not everyone is well suited to the task. Children's author Teresa Kaiser explores the challenges and travails of serving at church in her Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server books from Our Sunday Visitor. She captures the plight of that poor kid who's struggling to get his act together but is slightly off kilter. Teresa's here now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. We've all seen these earnest youngsters, bless their hearts, who are so intent on doing good, but who always seem to fall a little short. You capture that situation in your books. Tell us about them, if you would. Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server is a reflection of each of us who wants so much to imitate the perfect love of Christ, and we all fall short. So Arthur is a little boy um, who's a model for other children who are trying to do what's good and get in the way um, maybe of themselves sometimes. Arthur is particularly clumsy, so he really wants to be an altar server, but is worried that it won't be, that his, his sincere efforts won't be enough. And fortunately, um, he finds that God, of course, accepts his attempts, and he gets the chance to to serve at Mass and does so with full gratitude for the job. The books are intended to serve as a model for children because so often the Church presents this perfect standard of Christ, and we want to be like Him, and we get in our own way, and we struggle. And fortunately, the love of God is so great that He embraces us and accepts us and takes our feeble attempts and turns them into something glorious. <laughs> That's certainly an important lesson for kids to learn. We all try, but we all fall short. <laughs> so that's great. What age group are you aiming at with these stories? The Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server books are for ages maybe four to eight. 
He is an altar server. He has had his first Holy Communion, but it's great for kids who are kind of getting into that moment who might be preparing for First Holy Communion or preparing to perhaps be an altar server. But really at any moment in the church life, if they're connecting with other picture books, that's kind of the moment that Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server is for. How'd you get onto this idea? What's the inspiration behind these stories? Oh, I mean, I think the inspiration is just, I love to write children's books and to share the love of God through them. And um, I have also, you know, have my share of faults and uh, just so grateful for God's love. And that's such an important message that comes through in, in my work. Yeah, tell us about some of your other writings. Well, as you may have said, by the way I'm phrasing this, um, Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server is a theory. So this book, Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server, is the first book. He he also rings the bells, and that talks about the moment of the transubstantiation and right. the love of Jesus in the Eucharist. And then next spring, um, there will be a book coming out about how he plans the perfect Lent. And of course, it doesn't go quite as perfectly as you would hope. <laughs> But I also have written a board book for younger children uh, called The Little Catholic's Book of Liturgical Colors with Holy Heroes, and um, that is for introducing the love of God through the symbolism of liturgical colors for young children. Yeah, you're you're really sort of uh, slipping in a little theology here. Uh, it's it's subtle, and I'm sure it's at a, at a level that children can understand. But when you talk about things like transubstantiation, that's a pretty sophisticated idea. Yes, I mean the church has such riches to present, and and kids can um, pick up sometimes subtlety is the best way because uh, they pick up on so many small things, and that's part of the power of picture books. Yeah, that's right. These are illustrated. We should mention that your illustrator is Mike Schwaim. Is that how that's said? Schwaim is, I believe, the pronunciation. And so he has illustrated the entire series. And you can also find his work accompanying the Art of the Clumsy Altar Server short stories that are going to be in the OSV Kids magazine next year. Any inspiration for adult books? Grown-up novels? Yes, well, I've always loved writing for children and never planned to write a book for adults. But when I went through a difficult circumstance in my life, um, I had to caregive. And for, I had the blessing to caregive, but it came with a lot of sorrow. And that uh, introduced me to Our Lady of Sorrows. And I had never heard of that devotion, but I got to really be reintroduced to Mary in a big way. So uh, I did write a book about that called Caring for a Loved One with Mary. Hmm. In gratitude and hopefully to share with others the incredible way that Mary can accompany us in our sorrows. And particularly in that book, I highlight the sorrows that one might encounter when they're caregiving for a loved one. Well, how can people find out about Arthur and your other writings? My website is TeresaKaiser.com, and that should have all of my books on it. And many of my books are published through Our Sunday Visitor. And um, and the Liturgical Colors Board book is through Holy Heroes. Teresa Kaiser, author of the children's books in the series of Arthur the Clumsy Altar Server. (laughs) It's a real cute concept. I'm sure that they'll be enormously popular. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Be with us next time when we explore other aspects of religious communication and look deeper into the great Christian heritage of free expression. 
Free Expression with Bill Castle is a production of Good Shepherd Catholic Radio and Company Publications, where good books, good music, and good radio are always good company. Dan Curris provided technical assistance. Theme and incidental music are by Dan Adam. The program was produced and directed by Bill Castle. This is Good Shepherd Catholic Radio.